This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. In his memoir on writing, novelist Stephen King wrote, the editor is always right. The corollary is that no writer will take all of his or her editor's advice, for all have sinned and fallen short of editorial perfection. Stephen King points to the universal gut response writers have to an editor's edits. Even if the edits are better, our pride tells us the editor can't always be right. We think we slaved over that sentence, that opening story. Surely they must have gotten it wrong. And so we wrongly, or rightly sometimes, keep it as it was before the red line. It's one of the great conundrums of writing. How do you know which edits the editor got wrong? And how do you learn to accept that an editor is almost always right? So Dave, I think we've all had an experience of being edited. When you're a writer, you can't get away with not being edited. When I was doing freelance writing for a magazine a couple of years ago, I I remember this one time that I felt like the editor got my edit so wrong at first. I was writing a Christmas story about homeowners in the Vancouver, Washington area. And she told the story about how she and her husband got engaged on Christmas Eve, and that's what makes Christmas such a special holiday. And then she went on to say how they brought this house back to life, much like um, the couple in It's a Wonderful Life. So I created this opening that was hearkening back to the story of It's a Wonderful Life. And it was very warm and felt very cozy and captured the epitome of Christmas. I got her edit back and she had stripped the entire story She she and replaced it with another opening. And I was shocked and I just, and I thought that it took all the warmth out of the story. In fact, I ran my story by the homeowners to review and she loved it. And then she saw what the editor had done to the story and she was not as happy with it. Yeah, but who won? <laughs> right, absolutely. The editor won. And the reason why she won was because she had the editorial grid in mind and she had the bigger picture of what the magazine as a whole had to tell. So. We had about four homeowner features in that magazine, and this particular homeowner's strength was decorating with um, like outdoorsy type evergreen material and bringing it indoors for the holidays. And that's what she wanted to focus on. And so she didn't really care for my story in the context of what she was wanting the pictures and the story to tell at large. That is classic for magazine writing to be edited by the by the editor and and something that's significant like the opening story that's a that's a big edit and especially because of all the work you did to craft that that took a lot of work and just to have it whacked that is an emotional gut punch right because i would think that you probably agree with this we often spend the most effort setting up our article with that opening story or that opening line and everything else flows from that right so i had spent hours probably thinking through how i wanted the the actual article to flow from that opening story and it 
was a little bit heartbreaking to see it cut. She was able to keep some of the other stuff I wrote, but she really reshaped that entire article because it was just the wrong angle to begin with. So I guess, I mean, that's maybe one takeaway that editor may be changing things because you aren't clear on what the directive is in the first place. I think that's clear for all magazines or true for all magazines. Now, most magazines are dead. I think my children, I'm trying to think if they've ever even picked up a magazine, <laughs> but there was an era, uh, a golden era of magazines. In fact, if you wanted to become a writer, you moved to New York and, and wrote for publications and while you were doing that, you could make a living. You could make a, a living doing that. And then you eventually would work on a book. And a whole culture of writers were developed by the magazine industry. But of course, most magazines today, because of the internet, because of about 25 years ago, you know, the internet uh, came onto the, onto, into the world. And, and, and now most everything is online. However, that is very true. A magazine editor is is God, and he or she will determine what goes in that magazine. Now, that's different for a book. When I was a magazine editor, I worked with literally hundreds and hundreds of writers. So does that mean that you're a God, Dave? <laughs> I was a God. <laughs> I am no longer a God. <laughs> but back then, man, you worked with some, some of the writers were very experienced. And others were neophytes. They basically had one idea that they wanted to publish in the magazine. And one, one of the patterns that I noticed that many of the experienced writers appreciated a good edit. So they submitted their manuscript and then it went through our editorial process. And you really never heard a peep from them unless we had changed something in error, right? There was an error in it. And one writer in particular was a professor from Duke University. In fact, it was specifically Duke Divinity School. He was also Dean of the Chapel. And this guy had written, oh my gosh, 15, 20 books, lots and lots of books. And, and so he would often publish with us and I ended up being his editor. He always appreciated the editors. I'm trying to think of a time that he came back and asked for significant changes. He just didn't. So he was someone who appreciated you know, the role of an editor. And it really is hard to find a good editor. And maybe we should talk about this because most everyone that you find is a proofer and not an editor. Now we've discussed this before. And I would say that lots of editors have their unique strengths. Some editors are really great at titling. Some editors are really great at the structural piece. I, I think that have their strengths. They're not great at everything, but <laughs> I'm thinking of one editor I had in particular and she, her titling was wonderful. It was clever and it was to the point and it painted a picture and I always struggled with titling. And so I knew that my weakness was titling. And so I really relied on my editor to help in that area. So you had mentioned that uh, your father had written a book and you noticed how it opened a bit too slowly. Right, right. Yeah, he wrote a book about his experience. He was actually hit by a school bus and it was a really traumatic experience. He was in ICU for weeks and he's actually partially paralyzed because of it now, but he's walking. How old he, is he? 47, which is two years older than I am now, which is just amazing to think about, you know, in two years, 
just where I am. I feel so young, right? <laughs> I'm clearly older. I used to think my dad was so old when that accident happened, but he was a young man. He was 47 years old when that happened. So that was about 23 years ago. So it's been a while. So he wrote a book, my mom and, and he wrote a book actually, but he wrote the majority of it, like eight out of the 10 chapters. And his story, his first chapter began with him waking up in the morning and going for a run and just like it was every other normal day. And I remember thinking that what's going to grip people and keep them reading is if they, if he started right in the middle of the action of him being hit by that bus and what emotionally was going on in that moment. So he um, took it to his editor and his editor um, noticed that as well. And he actually changed it and it was a much better opening. That reminds me of a story. Several years ago, someone asked me to endorse a book and it was someone that I had worked with many years ago on an article and he had turned that article into a book and he sent me the manuscript and wanted me to read it for an endorsement. Now the book was really well done and I can't say anything critical at all. It was just, it was a very moving story and it was a great book, but the first chapter was a snoozer and <laughs> it was similar to what your father did with his first draft, which in, in this instance, instead of gripping the reader by the, you know, by the throat and or grabbing the reader by the throat, it, it was just information. And it wasn't until chapter two that the story actually began. And I just thought, oh man, I wish I could be his editor on this, which I wasn't. And I didn't say anything to him because it was way too late in the process. But if you're writing a book, that first chapter is your pitch chapter and you have to grab your reader by the throat and make sure that he or she wants to read for the rest of the book. Uh, it's really important that you do take the advice of editors and good editors can really help you uh, improve your book. What are some qualities of a good editor and what are some qualities of a bad editor? So let's just start with the negative. So I, I think that's the easiest. One is if it's proofing and grammatical stuff, that's a bad editor. That's not even an editor. Yeah. Your high school yeah. teacher could do that, right? That's not an editor. That's a bad editor. If he or she is only giving you proofing, you need to fire him or her. I would say another is someone who cannot say anything positive. And there are editors like that. They're arrogant or they all they see is the negative. If that's true, that means they're not a good editor because an editor understands a relationship between or with the writer. That's such an important piece for that trust to develop. Also, I think if the editor is changing your voice, that might be a moment when you question what the editor is doing. It might be clear, clearer the way the editor is saying something or, or encouraging you to say something, but you may have chosen a particular word or phrase or way of painting a picture because it's reflective of your voice. So I would think in some cases, a editor doesn't get your voice and they're just paying attention again, like to the grammatical structure of a sentence. So what would be some specifics when you see a editor change your voice? What would be that? I think, what would be one that you felt or saw when you were writing for that vintage publication? Well, I'm thinking of 
for instance, when I use an incomplete sentence, right? I don't know if she changed that in, in any of my magazine. I can't think of a specific instance with the magazine article, but I think of times when like editors possibly go in and they change an incomplete sentence, even though, for instance, I know you use some incomplete sentences for and to make a point pop, right? And so that's an instance where, yeah, it may not be grammatically correct, but I want it like that because I think it causes the reader to slow down or to take in what I'm saying. That's a great point. Cadence is huge. When an editor doesn't understand cadence, an author with a voice has cadence in the writing. And sometimes you do put incomplete sentences. It's totally legit to do that. And right. usually an incomplete sentence has to do with a cadence that you're trying to create. There's a rhythm. And, and an editor that kills that doesn't understand voice. Or similarly, if they put in really long sentences and that's not your style of writing, or they put in a word that you would never use, maybe it gets at what you're trying to say, but if you'd never use that word, then maybe it really doesn't make your writing better. Maybe it conflicts with your overall voice. Boy, that is good. A word that you would never use. That is another good one. And I think when you see a, a good editor will take four or five words that you use and condense it into one word, right? So right. maybe you have two adjectives and a noun, and instead he replaces it with a stronger noun. And that is a totally legit uh, act of editing. However, however, if that word that he replaced it with isn't a word that you would use, you need to flag that and, and make sure, and not just go back to the three or four words, but, but find the noun that is strongest that you would use. Word choice is very important. It reminds me of this past spring, my son was writing a paper for his English literature course. It was a, a Victorian literature course, I think. And so he wrote this paper and his professor was really keen on redlining. He would go in and use the redline function in Word, which if you don't know what that is, it's in the edit um, function up in Word and you just put redline function on it and you can cross out people's words and add words that you think are better and you can see this kind of collaborative process between editor and writer. Anyway, so he went in, he was editing my son's work and he used the word quixotic. And I asked my son when I was reading and reviewing the professor's changes, do you know what quixotic means? He goes, I have no idea. <laughs> so wow. it's one of those things that I, yeah, it gets at what Davis was saying in his paper, but Davis didn't even know what the word meant. So he couldn't really own that word. So we've had discussions about the word since then, and I have encouraged him to use it in another paper, but it just was an instance where He's editing it and saying as if he were writing the paper, not as if my son was writing the paper. Well, Dave, I want to go back to something you said about the relationship between the editor and writer. And I think that a good editor wants you to succeed in your writing as much as you want to succeed in your writing. So they're not looking for you to fail. They're encouraging you. They're, they're being positive while giving constructive criticism. Um, but they want you to and they want you to become a better writer. I feel like that's what you've done with me throughout the years, Dave. You've really tapped into my potential as a writer. I've told the story before about how I came to CZ strategy from the academic arena and I wrote in really long, complicated sentences and 
used words that I probably shouldn't have been using in popular writing. And it was just, it wasn't great writing. And you went into redline mode with me and everything I wrote, you redlined, whether it was an email for a client or an article that we were writing for a client or a blog post, whatever it was, you redlined everything. And you really helped me see how I could condense my sentences without taking away my voice. I, you'd still allow me to <laughs> use words that, you know, were true to me, but you would, you would, you would help me see where I could create cadence in my writing and pay attention to word choice. I've had to in recent years, you've really developed in your writing and back off from editing and allow you to do longer sentences. And and you have developed a really strong cadence because of your editing on on your writing on Instagram. And, but I, I do think that your style is very unique. And I think you have owned that. And I think the, the encouraging thing for writers should be as you write, you do develop your voice, you develop a style, which is your voice. Cadence is part of that voice. The length of sentences, the word choice is part of that voice. And and the, the more you write, the more you can then judge whether or not the editor is, is doing a good job of, of really editing you in a really, really professional way or simply just proofing or, or, or eliminating things that he or she just doesn't like but, but doesn't understand who you are as a writer. I think the real danger is when people fear the red line, you know, we call it the bloody first draft, meaning, you know, I give you my first draft at writing and you go in and red line it and it comes back or similarly, you send me something and I send it back to you and it's bloody, it's covered in red lines, yeah. right? And I think people fear that because it, it makes them feel like they, they're not good, that they failed. And I've come to realize that it's it's how you improve seeing it through a mentor's eyes, through an editor's eyes. And I actually am really afraid when I don't get a red line from an editor or from you. I think my writing can't be that good. It needs to be redlined. Please redline, <laughs> give me some feedback. So when you can make redlining and editing your friend, I think that's when you really start to see improvements in your writing. And the point here is the younger you are as a writer, the more you need the red line because the red line will help you develop your voice. Absolutely. Because as yeah. you see what gets redlined, you see the importance of stronger nouns, stronger verbs, fewer or no adverbs and adjectives, unless they are particularly unique. You'll see the value of cadence. You'll see the value of structure. I, all those things come from being redlined. And I think if you're a writer, you want to be redlined. You just do. And I think you have to get over the fear of having to start over and redo something. Often we give authors feedback and say, you know, this chapter really needs to go first. Or I know that you've told the story of having to rewrite some of your chapters for Death by Suburb. And that's a really scary place to be because you think you're undoing all the work you've done and you have to start from scratch. And I, when I get to that moment where I've written something and I feel pretty good about it, but I have to start over, I've begun to tell myself that it's actually gonna be better the second time because I'm already that much further along on the processing of the idea. And I'm gonna build on that thinking rather than just duplicating it. So I think when you can, get over the fear of having to start over and seeing as an opportunity to make your thinking better, that's a great place to be. 
it is a great place to, to be and it gives you freedom to accept, it gives you freedom to grow. And ultimately, what do we all want? We want our words to impact the world. And I think clarity is, this, is the biggest issue that many writers struggle with, just being clear. And, uh, and but ultimately your name goes on the on it, right? So you have to make those decisions. Right, and we've worked with authors who have rejected our editorial advice. I'm thinking most recently we worked with an author who wrote a piece that was devoid of stories and it was just uninteresting. It was full of cliches. It was just kind of patently obvious all the points that were being made and so you and I, we recommended that this person rewrite it, open with the story, illustrate the points with the story, make it more evocative with storytelling. And this person came back to us and was severely offended. They wanted it a certain way. They wanted it the way they wrote it. And so we said, well, it's your name on it. You know, you can choose to do what you want to do. We would recommend otherwise, but, you know, do what you feel like you need to do. And so she published it without our recommendations. So it goes to that, your name is behind it. I think you're losing an opportunity though when you disregard the voice of a professional. That is the truth right there. Ultimately your name does go on the piece. And if you're, if you're writing for a publication like Forbes or the New York Times, I remember I did a piece for the New York Times on the suburbs. It was after my book came out and the New York Times editor reached out to me and said, would you do a short piece on the spirituality of the suburbs. And so I wrote the piece, she accepted it. And then when I saw that it was posted, she had made changes that I, I thought, man, I wish she had asked me, but she did not even let me see it before it went back up. Usually there's some courtesy and, but there wasn't, but that's the nature when you write for an, either an online publication or a, a print publication, the editors, as we've said before, our God, because they are they are the ones that decide what go in and what and what doesn't go in. So, but with books, it's a little bit different, and right. it, it's just a, it's a different it's a different medium, and and so you do have a little bit more uh, maybe uh, what's the word? You have more volition. Yes, more volition. That's a good word. Absolutely. Can you remember a time in Death by Suburb and writing Death by Suburb where you thought the editor got it wrong and you disregarded what your editor said? With publishing, you'll get the, the there's an acquisitions editor who acquires the manuscript and is working with you as you provide chapters. They'll give you feedback. But generally, there's not a lot of true redlining and editing in a book. There just isn't, which is why even if you're publishing with a with a with a big name publisher. Is, I would encourage you to find someone else to be a reader because sometimes you don't really get good editing if they've accepted the manuscript and given you a check for the first half or whatever the, the agreement is, whatever your contract is, sometimes that's it. And so the, the next thing you get is a proof, you know, is just a proof of the book later in the process. But there was a, there with, with Death by Suburb, I, I published it with Harper and with HarperCollins and they, they have a very rigorous process. They had an editor that went in that wasn't uh, my actual acquisitions editor, but who was, he, it was not just a proof. It would be really called a line edit and did the line edit of the, of the, of the, of the manuscript. And he went in there and changed a few things. And I was able to, to decide what I wanted and what I didn't. 
he caught so many wonderful, wonderful errors, <laughs> if you can say it that way. There were so many things he caught that I was so grateful for. There were a few areas, and it had to do with word choice, and I felt like he just didn't understand the section and how I was, what I was trying to communicate. Now, you have to be careful there because maybe he didn't understand it because I wasn't being clear, but there were several times, maybe a handful out of maybe 50 to 75 changes, maybe five out of 50, maybe 10% or less that I just didn't, I rejected. Yeah, that's not many really overall. No, 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 no. no. You said something important though about the value of a reader. And I think that that's one way you can gauge whether an editor is spot on is you take the portion that has been edited that you're wondering if it's good as edited or if it would be better the way you had it run that by one of your readers and see how they respond and ask them for a really objective point of view you know don't ask them to just tell you what you want to hear but ask them you know what what do you think works better and that's one way i think you can gauge whether an editor's edits are, are right. You don't want to do that with every change, but if there's one part that you feel particularly passionate about or particularly like it needs to stay as is, run it by one of your readers. We could go into a whole nother uh, 15 minutes talking about finding a reader or readers for your book. These these folks are companions and and they really need to be what we would call the center of gravity reader. We should do a whole episode on this. Mm-hmm. But we talk about this in our online course about finding these readers and they are so important and they function like high level editors because they're reading for clarity, for flow, for structure, whether it makes sense, really all the important pieces of editing. Yeah, we always recommend our authors have readers outside of us as their editors. So they are a critical component of the book writing process. So let's end with some questions that maybe we should ask ourselves when we receive an edit from an editor. Okay. So the first I think is, have I taken a deep breath and waited a day or two after reading the red lines for the first time? That helps you to just step back a little bit, get some perspective, not respond from a purely emotional point of view. You can get a little bit of objectivity and maybe hear and see what they're really trying to say. What's another one? Are the changes merely proofing changes or changes to structure, to the type of stories, what we would call meaty changes? So are the changes just proofing like grammar and stuff? If if it's only that, I think the issue is that you don't have a good editor. We talked about this next question already, but let's reiterate it. It's do the edits alter my unique voice? That assumes that you have a voice and the longer you've been writing, you'll have that voice. But if the editor is going in and changing your voice, you may want to flag that. And it's hard to know that, but as we discussed earlier in this episode, I think it's it's important that you begin to understand what is your voice, what words would you use, what words would you not use, et cetera, et cetera. So is there any other questions, Melissa? I think so. This one is a good one, I think. Am I rejecting most of the changes? If so, maybe the problem is you. You go back to the story that you just told and you rejected about 10%. So 90% of the edits you are accepting. So if you were, if it was the flip, if you were rejecting 90% and 
and keeping only 10% of the edits, then maybe you're the problem. Yeah, that's a good principle. Because I just think a great editor is a great gift. And and I, I look back on, on my book, Death by Suburb, and I'm just so, so grateful for uh, not only the line edits, but the meta edits, the meta edits to structure, to story, to the need to add to certain chapters because I didn't explain clearly enough. Those are just wonderful, wonderful things. And when you're looking back 10 or 15 years after the book has been published, you're so grateful for that. Absolutely. All right. It's time for our words of the episode. Dave, you go first. What is your word for this episode? Okay. So I'm going to give you a word that I don't say correctly but it's defenestration. Yes. What does that mean? That is a fancy word. (laughs) Defenestration. I have to say it several times. It is the idea of throwing someone out the window. It's usually in reference to a political, uh, uh, it's really a political word. And it actually comes from, or at least is connected to the defenestration of Prague, where people were literally thrown out the window, but it can be used in a metaphorical sense, like being thrown out of office or the denifestration of, uh, of an idea or a person. <laughs> I'd better not use that word because I can't say it. <laughs> well, or people just won't know what you're saying. That's the problem with using big words, Dave. People look at you like you're a little busy, like, what, what is she trying to say? What is he trying to say? <laughs> I do think you have to be careful in writing. But- depending on your audience, right, about which words you use. But I do think you can raise the level of people's vocabulary every so often by using a word like that. I agree. And I enjoy it when people share new words with me. So mine is sodada. It's S-A-U-D-A-D-E. And it's a Portuguese word. And I love this word because it expresses so much what I feel as an Enneagram for, as an introvert, as a feeler. It's that feeling of longing, melancholy, or nostalgia. So if a song comes on that takes you back to your college years during the summer, that's sodata. It's a great word. Sodata, so use it in a sentence. When I was driving through the mountain village listening to Dave Matthews, I experienced Sodata and thought back to my early adulthood years. That's a terrible sentence, but that's how you'd use it. So <laughs> that's great. So so you like these kind of broody, dark mornings and you can... Uh, you yes, can, you know. I do. I'm, I'm happiest when I'm gloomiest. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> how have we worked together for 20 years? Dave, have you ever taken the Enneagram? I have. I'm trying to remember what I am now. My wife has done it and I, I'm trying to think what she was, but it has been very helpful to her. And she always asked me to do it. And I did it once, but I really need to do it. Maybe we should have a conversation about that sometime. I think that you're an eight, but an eight. That, an eight. Go go check it out. Well, that's <laughs> awesome. We we definitely should do that. Maybe that we'll talk about that and how it affects how we write. I don't know. Yeah, let's do it. An Enneagram writing. That's awesome. I love it. It is such a hot topic right now. You know what? I can already see how if if you are an eight, I'm not supposed to diagnose you, but if you are an eight, I can see it in your writing. Huh. Like crappy? (laughs) Is that why? No, no. (laughs) An eight is a challenger. That's what they're called. Provocative. Yeah. Provocative. Provocative. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, good. So we're going to do this. Well, it won't be next episode, but one of these upcoming episodes, let's, uh, we'll talk about ourselves, which will be fun. I always love talking about myself, but then we'll see if we can apply it to writing. I'm not sure. That'll be the challenge. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.